Well, I want you to imagine something. I want you to picture the good life. Whatever the good life means to you. So maybe that's having great health and living a really long time. Uh, Maybe you picture a loving spouse and delightful kids. Maybe you'd like financial security and a successful career. Or a dream house in a pleasant neighborhood. Uh, Maybe you think of other things. Academic achievements. Sport and prowess. Musical excellence. Luxurious vacations. Fine dining. Early retirement. Fame and popularity. Whatever it is for you, picture the good life. Now, imagine God offered you that life this morning. You could have it all, everything you ever wanted. But here's the catch. You can have everything, everything except God himself. He wouldn't be part of that deal. His presence would not go with you. Now let me ask, would you take that deal? Well, our passage this morning is Exodus chapter 33 to 34. Let me encourage you to turn there in your Bible. You can find that on page 73 if you're using one of the uh, Pew Bibles. Exodus 33 and 34. Now, there's obviously a lot to get through this morning, a couple of long chapters here. But there's a big idea that holds these two chapters together. And that big idea centers around God's presence with his people. And so to help us navigate our way through the story, I've got two points. We're going to see the problem of God's presence and the promise of God's presence. The problem and the promise. So let's start with the first point, the problem of God's presence. Now, Last week was pretty bad, wasn't it? If you were here, you might remember that the people worshipped a golden calf. God was angry. Thousands of people were put to death. The big question is, now what? Well, in chapter 33, God has some instructions for Moses. Chapter 33, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? You know, the people have been unfaithful, yet God is being faithful to his promises. And let's not forget the journey so far. Israel have been in slavery for 430 years. Now they're living in a desert. They've just escaped God's judgments by the skin of their teeth. A land flowing with milk and honey sounds lovely, heavenly even. This is a pretty sweet deal. The Israelites have fallen on their feet 
or so it seems. However, God isn't finished. Notice what he says next in verse three. He says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The people have just been saved from God's judgment. They will enter the promised land. However, God will not be going with them. His presence will no longer accompany them. And this is actually an act of mercy because the Lord says, these people are so stiff-necked, so disobedient, so stubborn in their sin that God would consume them on the way. And so notice how the people respond to this news in verse four. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I will consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. If for a single moment God should be in their presence, he would destroy them. The Bible teaches us that God is holy. He hates evil with a righteous passion. His justice demands that sin be punished. And so God in his mercy decides to remove his presence from his people. And this is a devastating turn of events because the whole purpose of the Exodus was for God and his people to be together. And so this isn't merely a setback. This is the end of the road. However, there's a glimmer of hope. So if you look down at verse seven, we read that Moses would set up a tent. He called this tent the tent of meeting. It was a place where Moses could meet with God. But notice the location of this tent in verse seven. It is located outside the camp, far off from the camp. It's almost as if God has exiled himself for the sake of the people. But in verse nine, when Moses entered the tent, God would descend in the form of a cloud and the Lord would speak with Moses. And notice the level of intimacy that Moses enjoys with the Lord. So verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. In Numbers chapter 12, God compares Moses to other prophets by saying this, hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. That's why in Deuteronomy, we read this. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses has this unique relationship with the Lord. He enjoys unparalleled access to God. So notice the contrast here. Here we have a sinful people who cannot dwell in God's presence. However, the people and God have a mutual friend. And in verses 12 to 16, this mutual friend, Moses, plays the role of a mediator. Look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, 
You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, that's God, said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring, up, bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses pleads with God. He reminds God that this nation is not just any people, it's his people. In verse 14 there, God appears to do a 180. He now promises to send his presence. However, this isn't obvious in our English translations. The you there is singular, not plural. He promises to send his presence with Moses alone, to bring Moses into the promised land and give him rest. But the people, well, they're on their own. But amazingly, Moses isn't satisfied. Like, I don't know about you, I would definitely take that deal. Now, no offense, church family, but if God was to be like, okay, Mike, look, you get to come to heaven. I'm gonna give you rest, no more suffering, no more pain, no more enemies. And best of all, I'm gonna be there with you. But those rebels from Stirling Park Baptist Church, <laughs> I mean, they're just, they're just too sinful to be in my presence. I'd be like, peace out, Stirling Park. I'm, <laughs> I'm going with God, sucks to be you. You know, I, that... Now, maybe that's because maybe that's I'm a terrible pastor and a selfish human being, but, but notice what Moses does in verses 15 to 16. He negotiates with God. He pleads with him on behalf of the people. He keeps saying, your people, your people. Moses says, Lord, it's your presence that makes your people distinct. Our very identity is based on you being with us. If, if you won't go with us, you must just leave us here in the wilderness. And so you see the tension in our passage, don't you? The people can't live with God. However, they can't live without God. And friends, the same is true for us. We can't live with God. He is too holy and we are too sinful now this is not obvious to us by the way because our default is to think trite and flippant thoughts of God to think of him as being kind of like us to view him as a as a buddy or a, a needy parent or a a cuddly grandpa we naturally have a low view of God and, and we naturally have a high view of ourselves don't we we, we compare ourselves to, to others, particularly the, the bad people in society, and we conclude that, well, we're pretty decent people. Yes, we're not perfect, but who is? I think despite the, the bad things we do, most of us think of ourselves as intrinsically good. Therefore, the thought of God's presence doesn't terrify us. And that's why the Bible's so shocking to us, offensive even, we cannot stand in God's presence 
any more than a sandcastle could survive a hurricane. We cannot dwell with God any more than, than we could enjoy an ice cream on the surface of the sun. We would be obliterated. We'd be crushed under the weight of his glory. We'd melt under the heat of his holiness. But here's the dilemma. We can't live with God, yet we can't live without God either. Because God created us to be in relationship with him, a relationship characterized by intimacy, closeness, fellowship. Life was meant to be lived with God dwelling in our midst. We live in a world where God often feels distant, far off, remote, don't we? However, this might, that might feel normal, but it's, it's not, because life wasn't meant to be like this. Our sin has separated us from God. And as the Israelites declared in verse 4, this is disastrous. That's why no matter how good life is, it's never enough. We're always left dissatisfied. Even our happiest moments are tinged with sadness. That's why many years ago, the church father Augustine prayed, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. The blessings of God aren't worth having without God himself. But here's the thing. We often deceive ourselves, don't we? We convince ourselves that we can live without God. As long as God blesses us, as long as he, as long as he gives us sound health, a nice family, a decent income, a successful career, ample possessions, a good reputation, a comfortable life. As long as we have God's blessings, well, we don't need God himself. And it's not just secular people that do this, by the way. I think we can do this too, can't we? We want God to forgive us, to rescue us from hell, to give us eternal life. But do we want God himself? Do we want him more than his blessings. It's interesting that God offers the Israelites all the blessings of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they didn't even have to worry about the consuming presence of the Lord. Now, to most people, that sounds like a great deal. But to them, it was a disastrous word, verse 4. What about you? If God... If he promised you everything, the health, the wealth, the grades, the career, the house, the spouse, the kids, the comfort, the vacations, if he offered you forgiveness for your sins, a get out of hell free card, eternal life, if he promised you everything, everything except his presence, would you take that deal? You know, if I'm being honest, when I look at my own life, when I look at my own heart, more often than I like to admit, there are moments when I'm willing to take that deal. So often I want God's blessings more than I want God himself. But the blessings never satisfy, do they? The good life that we're searching for always just seems out of reach. No matter how good life is, paradise is still lost. 
And that's because we were made for something more. We were made for nothing less than fellowship with the living God. And so nothing less than his presence will fill that void in our souls. So that's the problem of God's presence. We can't live with God and we can't live without God. Secondly, second point this morning, the promise of God's presence. The promise of God's presence. Okay, so how does God respond to Moses' intercession? Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So Moses finds favor with God. Therefore, God grants his request. This very thing that you've spoken, I will do. God promises now to send his presence with Moses and the people. In verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. He now wants a tangible sign of God's presence. He's effectively asking God to to put it in writing. Verse 19, and God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy but he said you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live so Moses is about to receive special revelation of God a special revelation of God all of God's goodness will pass before him we're told the Puritan Stephen Charnock called God's goodness the brightness and loveliness of our majestical creator. It's a, it's a, it's a display of, of all that's lovely and good and generous in the character of God. Moses is about to, to have this goodness pass before him. Uh, have you ever been somewhere, you've been out somewhere, and then all of a sudden a celebrity passes by you? Have you ever had that? You know, maybe it's a, a famous athlete or or a, a movie star, or a musician, somebody like that, and you just find yourself awestruck. You, you almost feel like a sense of, of, of weightiness from just being in their presence. Well, the celebrity of the universe is about to pass by Moses, the one who is infinitely glorious, majestic, and beautiful. In fact, such an experience will be too much for Moses to handle. You know, there are I don't know if you've ever seen this. There are people who, <clears throat> when they're in the presence of, their, of a famous celebrity, they just can't handle it. Have you ever seen that? They're just so, so awestruck that they literally faint. We'll just crank that up a few levels because notice what God says to Moses in verse 20. <clears throat> he says, but you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. To a certain extent, Moses' request is denied for his own safety. To see God's face means certain death. Now remember that God doesn't have a literal face. God is a spirit. He's invisible. However, throughout Exodus, what we've been seeing is that God accommodates himself to human understanding 
he, he basically condescends using metaphors about himself to essentially speak at our level. So in the next few verses, he refers to his, his hand and his back. God uses anthropomorphic language to help us grasp what he is like. So John Calvin, he, he, he used to say that this is like a grown-up who gets down on their knees and uses baby talk to communicate with the child. That's kind of what God is doing, using language like this. In fact, the Hebrew word for face there is the same word for presence. Moses cannot be in the full, unfiltered presence of God without being obliterated. That's because Moses, like the people, is a sinner. Sure, he's more godly than they are, but that's that's kind of like being the tallest gymnast. It's not very impressive. Compared to, compared to, to, to a holy God, Moses was, was morally bankrupt. Therefore, God says in verse 21, he says this, <clears throat> and the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I, until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I mean, our, our natural inclination when we read something like this is to, is to imagine what that looked like. What does it mean to see God's back? However, I think that misses the point. God's appearance is a mystery. It's, it's actually beyond our comprehension. Even Moses is only able to see God partially. He can, he can see God truly, but not fully. Now, this promised revelation actually happens in chapter 34. So if you look in chapter 34, in verses 1 to 4, God gives instructions to Moses. He tells him to cut new tablets of stone, Remember, he broke the previous ones in, the, in chapter 32. So he tells them to cut new tablets of stone and then to bring them up to Mount Sinai. No one is allowed to come with them. Animals are not even allowed to graze near the mountain. The whole area basically becomes an exclusion zone. So think of areas around Chernobyl and Fukushima. Too dangerous to step foot in. God's God's holiness is like a nuclear reactor, deadly to anyone not clothed in righteousness. In verse 5, God eventually reveals himself to Moses. If you look at verse 5 there, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, he will burn, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, these are some of those important verses in the Bible they're quoted or referred to dozens of times. 
they, they become something of a confession of faith for ancient Israel. So whenever somebody wanted to know what God was like, they would think back to how God revealed himself in these verses. They really deserve a sermon of their own, but we can only make a few brief comments. So first of all, notice how God repeats his covenantal name. The Lord, the Lord, he says. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. One scholar calls this God's salvation name. He's essentially recommitting himself to save his sinful people. Second, notice something that's so obvious we actually might miss it. The major revelation was not what Moses saw, but what he heard. Do you see that? The emphasis is not on how God appeared, but on what God proclaimed. Moses expects to see God's glory, but what he essentially gets is a sermon on the attributes of God. So Moses is not going to be commanded to draw a picture of what he saw. Rather, God's going to tell him to write down what he heard. In other words, Moses is still being called to live by faith, not by sight. Finally, the Bible, when the Bible speaks of God's name, it always means more than a title. God's name stands for his entire being. It's his nature, his essence. It is who God is. And who is God? What is he like? Well, he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithful. He's a God who forgives sinners. Yeah, he's also a God of justice who punishes the guilty. He lists seven attributes here, signifying perfection. God's people can have hope because of God's perfect character. Despite their sin, he is merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, patient, forgiving, faithful to his promises. Yet we can't help but see attention here, attention that exists within the character of God himself. How can a God of justice, a God who refuses to clear the guilty, how can he show mercy to sinners? It appears that God can either be merciful or just, but he can't be both. Either he punishes sinners, thereby com compromising his, his, his mercy, or he shows mercy and forgiveness, thereby compromising his justice. So there's a, there's a tension here. We see Moses' response in verses 8 to 9. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses worships God in response and then he intercedes for the people, once again, pleading for their forgiveness, pleading for God's presence. In verses 10 to 28, the kind of next section there, God answers Moses' request 
We don't have time to read it all, but he does so by renewing the covenant. So we don't have time to look at these verses in detail, but God basically repeats a bunch of the same instructions he's given previously. And the message is this, despite Israel's sin, God is willing to start over. If you look at verse 29, Moses eventually comes down from Mount Sinai. He's been up there for 40 days, 40 nights. And then he comes down from Mount Sinai. He's got two tablets in his hand. These are the the covenant documents. But then we read something fascinating in verse 29. We see that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Moses experiences an afterglow from being in God's presence. He's radiant, glorious. In verse 30, Aaron and the people see Moses and they're afraid to come near him. Even the reflected glory of God is too much for them to handle. His, his like secondhand presence leaves them terrified. In verse 31, Moses reassures them and eventually they draw near to him. Moses then communicates the Lord's commands. And when he finishes verse 33, he then puts a veil over his face. And this becomes a bit of a pattern. So if you look in verse 34, we read this. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And then Moses would put a veil over his face again until he went in to speak with God. Why did Moses keep putting a veil over his face? Well, we're not really told. However, we are told in the New Testament. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, The Apostle Paul tells us that the radiance on Moses' face would would actually fade. The brightness would grow dim. And Moses didn't want the Israelites to see the glory being brought to an end. And so what Moses would do is, as this glory was fading, he would put a veil over his face until he spoke with the Lord again. And then once he was like fully charged, so to speak, he would then go out without his veil and the Israelites would see the shining face again. And this would kind of be the pattern. Now this is interesting, but what's the point? Why is this in the Bible? Well, in 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul tells us, you can can read that maybe this afternoon. The Apostle Paul tells us, he says, that this is actually a picture of the old covenant the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai. This covenant was glorious, but it wasn't enough. It was going to fade. It was temporary. The fading glory of Moses is like the fading glory of the law. God's people needed something better, a new covenant, a covenant that couldn't be broken, a covenant that promised forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, a covenant that gives us confidence to be in God's presence. By the end of our passage, there's a tension that remains unresolved. We can't live with God, but we can't live without him. 
How can a God so gloriously holy dwell with his people? How can a God who is both merciful and gracious dwell with sinners without compromising his justice? This tension is left unresolved until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at these glorious words that we read in the gospel according to John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Just notice the contrast between Moses and Jesus. Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks with a friend. But one greater than Moses is here, and look how great he is. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. No one. Not even Moses. Yes, he got a glimpse. But even Moses couldn't see God and live. Yet the only God, God the Son, Jesus Christ, the one who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That phrase that we see in in, in John 1, verse 18, who is at the Father's side? is isn't my favorite translation. The Greek there is literally, who is in the Father's bosom? What does that mean? Well, as a dad, I was never a fan of the newborn stage. That's controversial, but I'm gonna say it. <laughs> my, my least favorite part was the 3 a.m. feed, you know, the, the 3 a.m. bottle feed. To be awoken from a deep sleep by the sound of a screaming baby and then having to change a diaper and then be puked on. I don't know. I just like never, I never warmed to that. <laughs> However, there was always, always one part of the 3 a.m. feed that I loved. It was, it was that moment when I'd put my, my sleepy baby on my chest and my heart would basically become their pillow and my heartbeat would would soothe them to sleep. I mean, I mean, that was the best. I miss, I, I do miss that, you know? But, but what was so special about those moments? Well, as my kids rested on my chest, or to use John's phrase, in my bosom, that's as close, as near, as intimate as we could get. When John says that Jesus was in, the, was in the Father's bosom, here's what he's saying. Jesus is as close to the Father as you can get. He dwells in the very heart of the Father. Jesus has the intimacy with the Father that we need, that we were made for. He knows the closeness of God. He's someone who has eternally enjoyed the full, unfiltered presence of the Father. And here's the thing, Jesus came to bring us into that intimacy. 
to share with us the, the fellowship, his fellowship with the Father, to give us an experience of God's presence that Moses couldn't even fathom. Here's the difference between Moses and Jesus. Moses saw God's glory and Moses reflected God's glory, but he did so partially. The fullness of God's glory dwells in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is Emmanuel, God with us. In John chapter 14, Philip says to Jesus, he says this, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And look how Jesus responds. He says, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say show us the Father? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When we plead with Moses, please show me your glory. Do you know what God does? He shows us Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't merely come to reveal God to us. He came to bring us to God. How can a sinful people dwell with a holy God? How can God show us mercy without compromising his justice? Only through the cross. Because at the cross, as Jesus died, God's mercy and God's justice kiss. Jesus pays the punishment for the sins of his stiff-necked people. He is consumed by the wrath of God to atone for our guilt. And it's his blood that seals the new covenant, a better covenant, a glorious covenant, a permanent covenant. We can't live with God. We can't live without God. Jesus is the solution to that problem. And all you need to do is put your trust in him. You know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then you're not fit for God's presence. Now, maybe that doesn't concern you right now, but a day is coming when we will all appear before God. You will stand in God's presence. And so you really only have two options. Either you will be consumed for your sin or Jesus will be consumed for your sin on the cross. So let me urge you this morning, trust in Jesus. And if you have trusted in Jesus, then your guilt has been atoned for. But that's not even the best news. You don't just have forgiveness. You don't just receive a get out of hell free card. You don't simply receive eternal life. No, you get God himself. He comes to dwell in you, to make his home in you. He's poured out his spirit into your heart. The problem of God's presence no longer applies to those in Jesus Christ. And that means you can draw near to God with boldness and confidence. You can come into his presence without fear. I love that quote from Tim Keller. 
the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Jesus has restored us to God's presence. How would your life be different if you lived like that was true? Christian, as you journey to the promised land, God is with you. He's with you as you lie awake with insomnia. He's with you in the middle of that marital conflict. He's with you when your anxiety is overwhelming. He's with you in the darkness of depression. God's with you when you're bombarded with temptation. He's with you when your child has another meltdown. He's with you when you wait in that doctor's office. God's with you when others abandon you, when you're stressed about finances. He's with you in your grief. He's with you when you feel very much alone. And what's true individually is also true corporately. Church, as we, gather, as we journey together on our way to the promised land, God is with us. As we gather under his word, as we come to the table, as we share the gospel with the lost, as we hold fast to the truth despite pressure from the world, as we face ridicule, opposition, even persecution, God is with us. Now let's be clear, he's not with us in a pillar of cloud. He's with us in Jesus. Therefore, if you want to experience God's presence, here's what you need to do. Behold God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you to do that this week. Behold God in the face of Jesus Christ. As you read your Bible, behold Christ. As you go about your day, take moments to meditate on Jesus. As you chat with your spouse or kids or parents or roommates or Christian friends, point one another to Jesus. When you fall into sin, run to Jesus. When you feel tempted to sin, think about Jesus. When you're weighed down by suffering, consider Jesus. Behold God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why the main point of, that's why Jesus is the main point of all of our sermons, all of our services. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. Because at the table, the Lord Jesus invites us to fellowship with him. At the table, we're, we are reminded every week the communion with God is available in Jesus Christ. So let's eat and drink and rejoice that God has reconciled us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the problem of your presence no longer applies to those in Christ. We're so thankful that Jesus came to reveal God and to bring us to God. We are sorry that so often we want your blessings more than we want you. Would you help us to desire you, to seek your presence above all things? Would you help us to behold you in the face of Jesus Christ this week? We ask all these things in his wonderful name. Amen.